Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Episode 16 of Hashing It Out. I think this is 16. Is this 16, Colin? Sounds right. No, this is this is 17. Is it really? We're moving too Last fast. All right. Well, yeah, episode we're... 17 of Hashing It Out. Today we're here with Modular. We have we have Chris, the CEO of Modular, and Will Diaz, the CTO. Um, why don't you guys start by telling us how you got into the space and then um, give us a high-level uh, bird's-eye view of what Modular is. Yeah, um, thanks uh, for the invite. Uh, it's Christopher, CEO um, of Modular. I uh, got into um, Ethereum in 2015 after reading a Wall Street Journal article um, around the Frontier release. Uh, so I've got several different um, paths uh, in my background. Um, software developer by trade, um, dabbled in finance for a little while, got my MBA, um, and um when ethereum came out um after you know the uh, bitcoin maturing it became really interesting the intersection of all the different fields where you have financing uh computer science and um just business in general being able to change the way that we coordinate uh, on a decentralized network and bringing transactions closer together was really interesting um, and so that really drew me in. And Will. Go ahead, Will. Yep. So hello, everyone. I'm Will. Glad to be here today. And I'm I'm the CTO at Modular. And I have a background in fintech, best uh, background in fintech, where I worked with uh, centralized uh, ledger uh, solutions before, uh, moving uh, recently to the dark side. To blockchain technology, to to work with blockchain, around a year ago, that's when I I joined uh, Modular and um, decided to to work together with Chris and Josh to build uh, good enterprise solutions using blockchain. All right, so let's uh, let's start by figuring out like what what is Modular? Why do you why does it exist? What problem does it stand to solve? So Modular started last year. Um, on the heels of some of the security um, uh, vulnerabilities that were exploited um, with um, wallets. And uh, Josh and I started putting together the uh, set of smart contract libraries um, that we intended on, you know, being shared across the community because we have this, uh, you know, unique uh, ability on Ethereum to share immutable code. Right. So when you talk about doing things like, um, you know, issuing ERC-20 tokens, um, doing, you know, some low-level operations, whether it be math or array handling, things like that, you know, it's code that you can create and post one time and then everybody can use. Um, and then ideally, you get enough users and enough eyeballs on it that um, that's any sort of vulnerability would have been considered at some point, and then it can become a hardened set of code that, that can be used um, in a more robust way. Um, and so that's where we started. Um, we did some services um, last year, you know, built the, um, you know, different ICO requests, uh, did uh, security audits, things like that. Um, and then we uh, quickly moved into product development. And so right now we're, uh, in the process of building um, infrastructure for financial institutions to help them get um, on blockchain. Um, you know, it's very fragmented. The technology is new, um, and a lot of people are trying out lots of different things. Um, and it's pretty scary for a lot of the more mature 
um, institutions uh, that have been using technology, you know, for, uh, you know, traditional technology for decades now. Um, and it's hard for them to grasp what's going on here. And then also with all the um, newness and attack, possible attack vectors, it's just a lot of um, opportunity to help them find their way into um, into the field and and get them established. Um, so that's that's what we're looking to do. Cool. So who are you actually uh, working with, if you can disclose that? So we don't have anybody we can disclose right now. Uh, we've we've our our biggest players right now are, are banks. Um, banks are very cautiously um, interested. Um, they they move slow, um, and we know that. Um, so. Uh, there's a lot of proof of concepts going on right now where they've dabbled in, in different ideas. Um, and it, it's going to take some time. Um, hopefully next year we can get them on board to actually, um, you know, the, the, the way to start um, is basically at the, the basic use case of, of blockchain that everybody's been using it for to this point. And that's, that's just transactions with cryptocurrency. Um, there's just a lot of demand. If you look at just the exchanges right now, there's just a lot of retail demand to simply hold these things, you know, and a lot of people are speculating them uh, and things like that. And so the meaningful use of applications where we're actually putting utility tokens to work and things like that, um, we're still a little bit out there, but people want to own these currencies for whatever reason. Um I feel like we should be agnostic to those reasons. If people want it and and businesses can offer it, then we should just help connect those two. Um, and then, you know, as as the technology matures, as more applications come out, um, then we can we can be ready to to handle those things um, at that time. So really, right now it's just baby steps, proof of concepts, trying to get them comfortable just holding the currency, and then when they hold the currency, offer it to their customers. And then when the customers have the currency, um, and then you know we start seeing applications that are going to use um, tokens across the board, whether it be you know on Ethereum, whether it be within these uh, potential bridges coming out with Polkadot and Cosmos, um, there's just a lot of opportunity that's going to be available in about three to five years, um, and we need to be ready for it when it comes. Right, and and it's it's complicated to get those uh, financial institutions to to be on board to write the next generation of uh, smart contracts that we run on chain when they don't even have like a good custody and management solution for their assets yet, like at an enterprise level, right? So uh, it's like Chris said, it's it's a lot of stuff that we need to develop in order to get it at mainstream. Yeah, definitely. And it's not just financial institutions that could benefit from this. Uh, regulators also have a huge problem. So government itself wants to be able to track um, and also know that the security is adhering to some level of standard. Those standards are not yet written. So it's really interesting yep. that you guys are taking on this early task of basically trying to develop a set of base level, just wallets, really like, uh, you know, just anything that you can, you can do to sort of, um, you know, audit and secure the the actual secure, and then audit actually the the assets as they're flowing through the network. What kind of um, second tier applications are you also looking to to develop with regard to this? Uh, it can't just entirely be smart contracts. Are you looking at um, uh, building other tools to enable uh, these institutions to uh, grow their asset portfolio and asset tracking and uh, security auditing capabilities? Yeah. So. Um... <clears throat> Uh, man, there, there's just a lot going on in that respect, uh, just in general community. So, you know, the, one of the things with developing in, in this ecosystem is it's just, there's so many things that need to be done that you can really kind of get lost in the sauce and like, uh, and then if you spread yourself too thin, then nothing really gets done efficiently. So for modular, this is our focus. Um, and there's just a lot of other things that, that we know other people are going to take on, uh, you know, if you, if you just look at the, at the protocol itself, you know, moving into um, the new um, uh, consensus algorithms um, and then, you know, 
getting watching to see uh, state channels mature um what the potential is for investment as far as like not just speculating on buying and selling the currencies but also staking them and getting returns from that um then you've got identity um on the blockchain is a big deal and that goes back to the regulator um aspect is you know as much as as much as we have you know the anonymity part of of blockchain we know that you know in the mainstream in a meaningful way like regulators are always going to have a say in the way that people are operating and make sure that you know there's not illicit activity taking place um and so identity is going to be a huge thing it's it's not something that we're taking on but we know that there's going to be a lot of people taking on as far as tools um the 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 tools right now are just a lot of community efforts um Right now, there's a group that that's getting put together. It's ETH Security, um, and there's a lot of big players in that. We've got um, Trail of Bits. We've got Secure ETH, which came out of ETH Denver. We've got Consensus. Um, Zeppelin's on there. Uh, people from the foundation are on there, um, and it's really like in a new organized effort to start putting together um, uh, lists of of currently available tools, like things like Mithril. Um, you know, your solidity coverage tool and then um, figuring out what tools we still need um, to um, help developers um, develop better, better code in and, and a secure and efficient way. Um, and, and then kind of organizing uh, what, what benchmarks we need to meet with these um, tools. Um, so as far as modular is concerned, we're just a major major part of the community um and and we're, we're dependent on a lot of other teams helping put things in place that that will be needed um without us having to like try and do it all if that makes sense right like and as chris said like uh focus is a problem because when you try to get from a to b you like there's a missing a lot of infrastructure and stuff that you have to build from the ground up yourself uh and also when when you when we are working uh uh with with those things you also time is also an issue because you usually if you are building a decentralized application or something around those lines you're going to take like three times longer than if you were building like a regular application because uh everything that you need to take in, into account everything that you need to build when you're going to work on it um like we like a few months ago we were building a, just an example we were building a simple demo uh where you would like move money from one smart contract to the other with some sort of mutsig uh uh contract working as an account between organization and the user and we wanted to abstract the 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 gas layer to the user like what if the user wants wants to to move funds without uh paying for gas what if the organization pays for the gas and we have to build like all this a code and, and and background to be able to 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 make it work. It's something that's supposed to be simple as that, right? You always like we we wanted to to complete a task, but we have to complete all those other small small tasks in the middle in, in order to get it done, and that, that takes like three times the, the time that we were expecting to begin with. I'm kind of curious as to I mean, you're definitely right about the fact that building decentralized applications is inherently more difficult because I don't think the, there's a lot of examples to pull from. And that's part of uh, what I gather from reading your online material. What you're trying to do is create more um, robust examples for people to build from. And that's part of like, I'm looking at your GitHub right now. You have your deployed libraries in which people can use. Can you give us a few examples of what libraries you, you have built and plan to build that people can use um, immediately take advantage of because that's 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 a great way to push the entire community forward is to give people working examples of modular pieces of code uh, i think um a lot of people refer to these something like crypto economic primitives like little little relationships that are tied into smart contracts that are well written and deployed so and have examples of uh, uh, usable examples that people can pull from it and add to their their software immediately what do you what are you guys yeah. doing can you preface that a little bit with what – so our audience comes from a wide wide background. We, we are a more technical podcast, but libraries are not often used 
um, in some of the applications that I'm seeing. And so maybe, yeah. maybe you can also talk a little bit about your approach and why you chose to go that route. Yeah, it's interesting to me that they're not uh, more used. I mean, that was the first thing that stood out to me when I started development on, on Ethereum. It was like, man, I mean, when you look at just, you know, like look at something like NPM, like packages are, are, are a big deal in software development so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and Ethereum just gives us this natural ability to write code once and use it everywhere. And it's and it's like a native it's a native thing to this technology. So it's not like you have to like, you know, put together, um, you know, hashes to verify the package and, and make sure that you're using what was intended. Um, like you can look at the source code of something that's deployed um, and verify it and know that, that that code's right there at that address for the rest of time as far as Ethereum's concerned, right? So, um, the other side of it, though, is that there are a lot of unique um, requirements. So to like give to paint, you know, everything with a broad stroke is, is difficult. Um, so I say that before I say like one of our libraries, we got a ERC twenty token library um, that's been it's written. It's got all the functions of an ERC twenty token. It's compiled and deployed at an address, and that library is there. Um, and can be linked to by anybody. We've got it on um, on Rinkby, and we've got it on Mainnet. Um, and and if you look at the token um, contract example that's packaged with that um, token library, you can see like the contract itself is very minimal. It's almost just like an interface that that just calls the functions out of the library. There's no reason that you have to actually write out the logic for a basic ERC20 token ever again. Um, because that that library is deployed and it's on chain and you can link to it in your code. And so if you think about that um, and you think about, um, you know, and, and then you, you kind of parlay that into some of the other, other libraries. Uh, the reason why we did that, so like another popular repo, of course, is Zeppelin's repo. Um, and, and the one thing that stood out to me when I introduced, when I was introduced to that repo was, um, it's it it was like it, it's a lot of contracts, a lot of contract templates, and it's a lot of copy and pasting, right? There's no there was no like definitive source of actually deployed source code that you could link to, and so that's where our focus was. Our focus was um, not to like redo an entire repo like Zeppelin's doing because they've got a lot of different contracts. Um, ours is like not as as varied, but they're all deployed on the network. So. Um, Good documentation and then deployment, um, and and so then we got a crowd sell library on there for like just like a basic crowd sell um, that we put together last year, and that's another thing. So like if you just want to do a basic crowd sell where you're taking in ether and sending out tokens, you actually don't have to write that because there's a library that handles all the functions. You just write the contract that links to it, um, and the logic's on chain and it's on chain forever. Um, so yeah, yeah, it is interesting to me that they're that libraries aren't as widely used. But again, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it, it's new. There's a lot of unique requirements, a lot of different ways to to handle things. Tokens, you know, even though ERC20 is spelled out, like a lot of people have gotten away from the basic implementation. Um, but likewise, that gets people in trouble, right? So then we had that uh, one security issue. I forget how long ago, but you know, there was an ERC20 token that was overflowing um, and uh, it hadn't been caught and there was all these tokens that had been issued using uh, this particular function. I can't remember the details. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, uh, I I think libraries are natural for Ethereum. I think we they should be used more. Um, and then also then, you know, you get into the question of, are they secure? You know, what if you have a bug in the library? And it affects all the contracts, and that's a very exactly real thing. Exactly what I was right? going to ask. <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened to Parity, right? Like yeah. their library got destroyed, and you know, but that goes back to well, if there's no eyeballs on it, like if if you look at our our token library right now, is that's not going to change. So if you look at it and you say this looks good, then it's good. It's good forever. Like as long as you don't have anything to customize on top of that, if you just want to put a basic token out there, that's good forever. You don't have to worry about it.
Um, and and the thing with open source is like not a lot of people like more people use it than actually build it, right? So uh, to actually get participation and get people to actually look at and to uh, and to contribute and to uh, make meaningful changes and meaningful pull requests and things like that. I mean, that's tough. I mean, you'd be surprised. I think, I think that's one of the things that we got out of like out of the wallet fiasco last year. Like, this code is is out for everybody, and thousands of people are using it, and billions of dollars are in it, right? But like, how many people actually took the time to look at the source code? <laughs> Obviously, not very many, uh, because you know it had those vulnerabilities. So. Yeah, you know, um, you, you do have to depend on the code. But if you put anything in production, if you put anything on mainnet, you have to depend on that code. So it can be something that's been sitting there for a while, or it could be something that you build and you just have that much confidence in, in your team. Um, you know, it, it just depends. Um, yeah, and just to make a hook on that, like every everyone is welcome to contribute to this to these libraries. Uh, they are all available on GitHub, on Modular's GitHub. Yeah. And that's actually an excellent way to to get started. Actually, uh, like to to understand like what we are trying to accomplish with each library that we are building. We have like uh, like contracts specific for like with helper functions for for arrays, for strings, and stuff like that. So uh, it's it's a good way to to learn a bit more if you were getting started into Ethereum right now. That's actually the way that I met uh, Chris uh, and John last year. I like I was using one of their libraries in in a demo project that I was doing. Uh, I saw an opportunity to to make something better, uh, uh, fork it, submit a pull request, and then we start the conversation. and And to, we are working together since then. So, everyone is welcome to con contribute on that. So this yeah, is they, this actually brings up. A, go ahead, Chris. Well, I was just gonna say they definitely need some uh, tender loving caring. You know, I talk about like actual contributions are scarce. You know, that's our repo, and I don't think I've. I've been able to get to it in about a month. You know, it's tough keeping up uh, open source uh, stuff without um, external help, just because at some point we gotta we gotta pull in resources and and make money and and you know just throwing that out there. Great. So this is actually this is actually brings up a point that's kind of been uh, I'm not really sure if there's a solution to this problem. Maybe you guys know it, but contract upgradability is. Um, I believe an important part of uh, what uh, uh, any uh, robust decentralized application should kind of consider. Um, when implementing libraries, um, I, it, it makes it kind of difficult to upgrade those libraries. So you made the comparison between NPM and I don't know, um, CPAN or just uh, app get on on Linux, you know, these are all all kind of like package management, you know, module management systems. Um, and there is an analogous relationship there. But um, how would I upgrade my library in the event that, say, an exploit was found or a new type of exploit was found that your contract is susceptible to and you would have no reason to even know that it was there? How can you upgrade your libraries and how could I, as a contract owner, be assured that, I'll always have the most uh, recent version, or let's say a standard changes. Like standards should be upgradable, meaning that something, some, some new functionality could be required in a standard, and I want to implement that functionality. I, I really want to upgrade uh, my library and my smart contract to adapt to that library. How would you suggest one go about that with the current way that you've built things? Yeah, so there's a few things there. Um, upgradability is a big deal. Um, it's it's tough, you know. I, I think I think that's one of Zeppelin's like primary uh, models is to solve the upgradability issue with uh, Zeppelin OS, where they're um, you know allowing token holders to to vote uh, on which contract to use. Um, and, and you need something like that because if I just create a proxy contract into a library uh, so that I can upgrade that library, I can shift I can shift the underlying code base at any time, right? So the decentralization there disappears. So you have to be certain that the logic that you link to is going to be available, um, and I'm not going to be able to shift the logic underneath it. Um, and so, you know, there's other implementations that we talked about where um, possibly having, like, on-chain uh, testing contracts that would require certain things to be met. Like, if you have these inputs and you have these outputs, 
um, and you have uh, certain milestones in between, having some sort of on-chain mechanism that could validate that if I did move the code base underneath, that it still met all the requirements and it wasn't doing anything that was unexpected. But that's that's really uh, it's good in theory, right? But it's it's not something that I think is practical anytime soon until it's well designed and well thought out. Which I think I think the approach of just allowing token holders to determine uh, which which contract to use is, is the best way to go at this point. Um, but the other thing you have to think about is is upgradability in general. I, I think we've gotten used to in web development, you know, constant upgrades, right? We're constantly changing things and we're constantly, you know, upgrading the software on a daily basis. Um, you know, in older software um, and more traditional kind of um, desktop software, um, the code didn't get upgraded as much. It was very purposeful. You know, when you move from version, I mean, you know, way back, you know, you were buying just new software just to upgrade. So I think I think blockchain software, smart contracts, I think they're going to be more um, in the traditional software um, cadence where we're not necessarily upgrading the code on a, on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis. I feel like, especially with the vulnerabilities that are possible um, when you have unaudited code deployed, Somebody is if you're if if you are successful at what you're doing and a lot of people are using it and somebody exploits it, we know that that puts lots of people at risk, lots of resources at risk, and so you have to have like dependable source code that that isn't going to be easily changed and exploited. So you get these audits. I think once you get those audits done, which are not cheap, right? So I mean, you're talking you know anywhere from fifty to two hundred thousand dollars to get audits done on smart contracts. When you put that expense in. And that you know you nullify that audit as soon as you change any bit of that code, right? So once you put that on chain, once you've made that expense and you put it on chain, I think that sits there for a while. I'm not sure we upgrade as often as we're used to with the web applications. And in that sense, the upgradability of the library isn't as um, isn't really as central to the focus. The, the, the focus is on dependability. Um, and, and getting it right in the context that it sits now. And then if we have an upgrade in six months and 12 months, then we just deploy the new code. And then if you're going to produce a new software suite that uses the new library, then you also have to deploy new code anyway. Um, I feel like upgrading libraries, if, if your software, which is also immutable, is going to take advantage of new library functionality, then that also has to be upgraded as is, which means you have to link to the new address anyway. So um, that's that's my general take at this point on on that problem. So that actually brings up another point: um, <clears throat> security insurance. Uh, first off, I think this is really relevant to bring up right now. Um, I want to congratulate Corey, uh, Dr. Corey Petty, on starting a new position. Uh, he just got hired by Status as their security engineer. Um, so, Thank congrats, you very much. Corey. Appreciate that. Yeah. Looking forward yeah. to it. Pretty, pretty decent setup from what it sounds like. So, yeah. Um, right. So, security is a big role um, in these companies. Uh, uh, not just companies, but just anybody dabbling, even dabbling in uh, building decentralized applications. Um, what's, um, what is your process for ensuring your the security of your libraries as you've built them what tools are you you using what things are you looking for do you have a checklist that you go through how do we know what uh what tests you're actually running off of this how can we independently verify your libraries um to the standards that you've outlined um as well as bring up issues that you may not have noticed uh, obviously probably github is the best way to report an issue that we noticed but what is your standard for um for deploying a contract how do you how do you know it's done yeah good question um it's difficult with open source repo because um it's not something that we pull resources in um, from and so um you know getting professional audits and things like that, it, you know, it, it's, it's not feasible for us to like pay for a major audit uh, every time we release a, 
an update to the library. Um, so there's, you know, several from the organization. Early on, it was just Josh and I, you know, and we just built a code and, and we posted it. Um, we put the MIT license disclosure on there, right? You know, you just use that at your own risk. Make sure you look at it and it's what you need and, and you're comfortable with it. Um, with that said, when we let, so for instance, when we built a, a crowd sale contract and we used our library, we did get that audited um, done. Uh, we also got an audit done on the interactive ICO that we built with uh, um, Robbie and Jason and um, uh, Vitalik um, last year, uh, which was a new protocol um, that that uh, we were looking to introduce to the community and and we actually got a consensus and a Zeppelin audit on those contracts um, and QuantStamp also, QuantStamp audited those. So uh, on that particular set, which included like the interactive ICO contracts and then the um, base um, contracts underneath it, um, including the math one and the gray one, so those all did get audited, but again, you know, as soon as we upgrade a contract, so we have the IICO specifically um, isolated, um, you know, so that you know which which commit was audited. Um, but yeah, I mean, in order to keep them up to date, I mean, like just the language itself, right? So they're all written in Solidity, and then Solidity is probably, I think it's it's in, it's like four versions ahead of where our last update was, so. Um, and, and then that gets into the whole layers, right? So like just source code is just one layer. Um, you've got, you've got to have faith in the, um, in the underlying protocol, um, op codes. Um, you got to have faith in the compiler for Solidity. Um, those are things that, you know, when we write a contract, we write, we write it and we get the source code out of it, but, um, there's not. That's not saying that there's not a, a, a vulnerability in the compiler for Solidity itself, right? With the new upgrade. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, our process is. You know, we develop it. We put code coverage on it. So we use uh, Truffle testing suite. We use Solidity coverage. Uh, we get. I think all of them are at 100% coverage. Uh, I think the IICO one we got up at 90 some percent coverage. Uh, but Coverage is just one part of it. The other part of it is like considering all the attack vectors um, and what the um, surface is. Um, I feel like you know, with like something like 100% coverage, you you give yourself a lower bound. Meaning we've tested all the lines of code here, and they at least do this minimum thing of what we want it to do. You still don't really get a um, the if you do the proper threat analysis, you still have an upper bound that you have to consider. So like, even if this code meets the bottom bound of bare minimum of what it needs to do, you haven't really explored like all the things that it should not be able to do. And you still got to put that upper bound uh, on the, on the testing um, so that there's not unintended consequences that you didn't see um, that uh, are capable above and beyond what the code should do. So, um, we consider all those things we did, you know, we have our, our checklist for when we do others, um, audits for others. Um, and, and so we go through that process and, um, make sure that we're comfortable enough to put it on mainnet. Um, but that's as far as it goes. It's, it's for the open source code. It's completely internal. Um, we have yet to put one of these financial institutions, um, on mainnet yet, um, but we will certainly go through several audits before we do. I mean, do that. I feel like a, uh, a portion of this, and I, I, I have a feeling you agree with me based on the name of your company, is um, keeping things modular. So you want to minimize yep. the amount of uh, code or functionality you put in a single thing that you deploy so that you can have reasonable bounds that you just specified. You don't want massive monolithic, monolithic codes that do multiple types of things um, because that in introduces a lot of, of problems that are difficult to test for or potential problems that are difficult to test for. Uh, how do you – is that kind of the, the way you see proper software development in decentralized applications? I'm, I'm assuming so based on the name of your company. If so, like how do you, how do you try and define um, – 
what is enough for a package that could be deployed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just going a little bit uh, on, on what adding what Chris was saying, like everyone knows that uh, automated tests are important on your code and your application. However, as we are dealing with with the blockchain applications, it's it's ten times more important to to think about all the edge cases and try to cover everything before a release because every release there's this cost and, and effort involved to get people to to use this upgraded version. So if you catch something after the release, it's it's way better to catch it before, right? Uh, and and going by by the modular analogy, I think that's absolutely right. And it's not only the way that we that we build smart contracts, but it's also the way that we are building the the, the infrastructure that will deal make the the connection between the client and 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 the chain. So we believe that uh, a lot of things that we that we can solve, we can solve by adding a layer between uh, the client and the blockchain and not having this direct connection because that's the whole premise. That's how uh, we're going to solve scalability with the channels and stuff like that. So fortunately, I cannot go like very deep into the technical uh, uh, explanations on this. But yeah, like as, as more like modular that you go, uh, then then the better because you can tackle each problem individually and the separate pieces. Sorry, Chris, yeah. you can go ahead. What to say? I was just going to add on like. Um... Will have been a, a microservice ma uh, master, so part of our architecture for the off-chain systems is, is using the microservices model specifically to, you know, it definitely helps with the keeping things very modular, keeping the logic um, purposeful with its boundaries and, and what it should be doing, um, and so that, that way it's a lot, lot easier to maintain. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you're, I assume you're going to be building integration tools. Uh, I, I think that's what I gather from this, but I just want to clarify that you, you, you feel as though it's important that once I take your library and I implement it, that I can run the same tests uh, or similar tests or selective tests, whatever, um, that you're running on my application and ensure that my implementation of your library is to snuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that I haven't finished doing with our with our library repo is right now we've got the Ethereum libraries repo, which has all of the libraries in it. Um, and then I don't know if you notice, like we have like different individual repos with each like for the different um, libraries individually. Um, and so we kind of segmented those out into their own package. Um, and with the idea that they're very self-contained packages, so they have their own test suite on it, um, and then you don't have to like download the entire Ethereum libraries to, to use one of them. Um, and then it's also in preparation with ETHPM. ETHPM has been working hard to come out with version two. I don't know if you guys have tried to use it last year, but V1 was very sketchy, and, and so we got away from it. But um, ETHPM, Piper, Merriam, and, and his team, uh, Truffle, they've been work, working really hard on getting version two out, so that should be coming out shortly. So, want to get those hear. libraries prepped to go on that. Yeah. So, um, so what um like uh, for our audience, what 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 libraries have you produced, and what is uh what is in your pipeline? So up to this point, we have uh, a mass um, library which protects uh, overflow and um, underflow. Um, it's it's just like uh, Zeppelin Safe Math, uh, our implementation is a little bit different in that it doesn't throw immediately if you overflow or underflow. It, it, um, it's almost like um, in Go where you have the return and then the error variable um, so that we don't make the assumption that you immediately want to throw if you overflow or underflow. Like maybe you want to continue in the logic. Um, so we give you the error return. Um, and then you do with it what you will. If it's true and you want to throw it and do that, if, if you want to continue on to do something else, you can do that. Uh, we've got an array handler, uh, which will basically um, handle arrays that you might may have in storage on chain. Um, uh, it will sort it. It will um, get the index of uh, values, things like that. Um, we've got the token library, which 
uh, as of right now, is for ERC-20. I think we had a PR in for pulling in the 721 standard and pulling that out. Um, we've got three different crowd cell libraries for three different types of crowd cells. Um, just one's the basic crowd cell, um, where it's ether in, uh, token out. We've got the um, capped crowd cell where you can cap addresses for a certain amount of tokens, and then the interactive um, crowd cell that we put out earlier this year. Um, and I think I'm missing another one. Am I missing one, Will? No, I think I think that's it. I think you cover all of them, or well, most of them. And like, if people get get interested on the interactive crowd sale uh, contract, there's also a paper that was published earlier earlier this year uh, with more details about the, the the purpose and implementation. And you guys can can read it. Online. That'd be great. I'll I can make sure I'll link it in the, in the show notes for our listeners. Um, how do you make money? How do you how do you fuel the company? Because it's like a lot of what you're saying and doing is is open source work that is uh, notoriously not fruitful, which is why a lot of people build tokens so that they can incentivize open source development. How are you guys making money if you're not doing that? Uh, so we start off bootstrapping, just uh, providing services and stuff like that. Uh, we've got a couple of backers now, um, and so uh, we're we're really just. That's one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier, you know, our focus has kind of come off the, the repo for a little bit because we're really trying to get this product done um, so that we can get some solid partners uh, with some of these financial institutions um, and and either get them locked in uh, proof of concepts or um, maybe even putting this, uh, putting some of our stuff into production. Um, so, yeah, right now we're not making money. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think a lot of us are really. I mean, you're either funded off tokens or, or you're, you're, you, you've got a, a solid group of backers that, that are helping you uh, move along. But, yeah, no revenue yet. Yeah, I think it's important to make that distinction, not because um, I, I, I think the reason I think it's important to make that distinction is because uh, it's really, really crucial work that people do these types of things. But there it's it's notoriously difficult to get paid for doing open source work um the 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 experience that comes from doing it will end up being fruitful in terms of consulting when all these people need these things to work and then people that know how to make them work uh but that has to be bootstrapped somehow and uh like i hope maybe even listeners can reach out and help in any way that they can if it's not through code code pools you know what i mean yep yeah for sure um, there's another initiative that uh, Robbie Bennett um, did with the foundation. It's called ETH Prize. Um, I think they have a site, ethprize.io or ethprize.org. Um, they've got two initiatives for the package manager. And I want to say a um, debugger. Um, and they, they actually have some really serious money backing those initiatives uh, bounties basically um and i know status has their bounty program mm -hmm. too so yeah yeah there's there are some ways to contribute uh, and make some money um how do you uh yeah uh what was i gonna say i just completely lost my train of thought <laughs> yeah i got one go ahead guys you're using these libraries that increases gas cost um how do you what do you feel like uh the uh cost per transaction impact of using your libraries versus having an innate code is, and how can users mitigate that if they feel as though it's going to be kind of an overall issue? Um, so the delegate coin is 10,000 gas, I believe. Um, and so that's your increase. Um, and then, you know, it, 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 it it's very fractional of of, it's very small as far as what that cost is um, in the big scheme, uh, and it's definitely a cost-benefit analysis thing. Um, you can pull code into your contract out of libraries if the library functions are internal um, function calls, um, and then that just uh, pulls the bytecode right into your bytecode, so you don't actually have to make the delegate call. It just makes your contract larger, so the deployment costs um, are higher. So, and, and that's and that's the difference. You know, if you're using the logic in libraries, um, 
A, you know, that it's not logic that you had to write. B, um, it's, uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's basically out there on, on the chain. And so you reduce the amount of code that you have in your contract. So your deployment cost is lower, but your transaction costs are, are higher. Um, and then it's the other way around if you, if you pull a bytecode into your contract. So, yeah, the best way to do it if you, if you don't want the extra delegate call is to pull the bytecode into your contract by making the functions internal. Um, right. The and, and, yeah, and we try to, to keep like a fair trade-off between the, the functionality and because like if like functionality helps a little bit, but it costs a lot of gas, then it might be not worth it to to have any code and, and basically you you are better off doing yourself but we we try to keep a trade off that is like a reasonable amount of guess for the for the the benefits of using the libraries i remember what i had to say what i had to ask first off i think that's a very key thing to keep in mind when doing any type of uh blockchain development is the trade-offs with money and functionality. Uh, there is inherent costs to everything that you do, and it's not necessarily um, worth it to add a lot of things to low-cost functions or even implement them at all. So like making design decisions based on um, the actual need to have things on-chain or what needs to go on-chain is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. if, it, if it's going on-chain, yeah. it should probably be highly secure, which requires things like safe math, so you should be paying those costs. Otherwise, maybe you should think about putting it on-chain in the first place. Right, and it makes you remember from the computer science classes that everything has a cost, right? Everything has makes you think about development in a different way because when you, when you when you develop like uh, conventional application, like even like web applications, for example, uh, today, uh, a lot of things like you take for granted. You, you think it's free. Oh, I can make this loop over here because it's free. Like it doesn't cost a lot to me. But when you move to the blockchain technology, you you have to remember those low level things of how we're going to implement something and keep like a good trade off because everything, every single line of code that we're writing, uh, it's it, it, it's money basically that you're spending is like on, on execution. So it makes you think about like computer science and or a lot of different way than conventional applications. Yeah, it actually agree. like incentivizes good coding practice. Whereas I hope in, it does. Well, <laughs> that, I mean, actually, it, it literally does. Like it, it doesn't hope it does. It literally does. Like uh, it's a poor example because you wouldn't want to do this on-chain calculation. But, you know, if you wanted to sort an array, you know, you've got a myriad of sorting algorithms to pick from. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a quick sort is going to be literally cheaper than a bubble sort. So um, you would actually save actual money, um, not just for yourself, but for your users. If you are, um, if you are, um, you know, uh, being a better coder. I mean, right? there's, there's an aspect of, of, I mean, it may be the difference between usable and unusable in terms of cost benefit analysis. If you if you yep. have poor implementations, which are which are which is incredibly important, like you can build something that does awesome things, but if it costs too much, if the cost to do that thing is too expensive for the thing itself, then no one's ever going to use it, which means it can't ever gain traction, and you can't earn money from it or whatever, or, or like be a successful company. So you need to understand the efficiency of the things that you do in smart contracts, just to make sure that it can be used in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, and and you need like you need to think also like there's the cost of the code execution, but it's also the cost what of scalability as well, right? Like in a way that uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I, I believe it was early uh, last year, early 2017, that it was like a, a contract that was a, a raffle on Ethereum, and a lot of people started to participate on it. And then when they called the withdrawal function to everyone get paid, <laughs> yeah. remember that? Yeah, so it was too expensive to fit in a single block, so you couldn't ever yeah, call exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. So suddenly, like all those people, like uh, like the people that wrote the contract didn't think that there was possibility to have like thousands of people participate. And then uh, you had to run this 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 for loop and then run this logic for each one of them on the same call. It was basically impossible. So. Uh, it can it can be very very costly to to don't write a good code and actually think about all those these problems. That's a great example. Um, 
I, I remember what I wanted to say earlier, and that was uh, you have in your GitHub a lot of Ethereum functionality, Ethereum libraries, and you plan to do other libraries, but in, in what? Like what what other platforms are you even considering contributing to? What's worth it in your opinion? So that's a good question. Um, we've had discussions about moving horizontally across chains. Uh, you know, for us, um, there's really there's there's two networks that have been around for for more than a year now, and that's Bitcoin and Ethereum. So uh, you have other things um, like Hashgraph that are proposed. Um, you have uh, other chains that um, like yeah, I mean they're they're all proposed. They're all proposed for beta releases. Um, and I think I think once once these things are more established, we'll move out. But we're much more focused on on getting what's what's viable now um, into people's hands. Um, than moving out and, and, and trying to move across platforms right now. Uh, so right now the plan, the pipeline is, is we don't have anything slated for, for other platforms just yet. That's good to know. Um, I, I, there's this mentality that I, uh, I think it's one of those, one of those schools, monastery schools that kids go to uh, these days the, the, and the ideology behind the schooling is make the kid an expert at something. So he has something to relate mm -hmm. everything else to. Um, and when you kind of take that idea to what you're doing now, it's, it's kind of make really, really, really good libraries for the best smart contracting system that currently exists. And when the opportunity yep. arises to make things for, for newer ones, you'll have really good repository to pull from to do that quickly, as opposed to, um, kind of wetting your, your feet or, or, or cutting your teeth on everything all at once. Yeah. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure we have to worry about, you know, other engines, you know, I think, especially when you look at, at pro, uh, projects like Cosmos and, and Polkadot, my theory is that, you know, you know, we, we end up with an internet of blockchains and, and then your different platforms are just different engines. And so it's not whether or not like another newer platform overtakes Ethereum. I think, uh, you know, just like we have different operating systems, um, we're going to have different blockchain engines. I don't think the Ethereum engine is going to go anywhere. Um, and then when other chains come out and they have their own, you know, bytecode and their own engine, then and you choose to be a developer on that platform, then then you can do that. Um, I think I think it's going to I think the market's going to go much more in that direction where you don't we're we're used to having like one monster chain because we had Bitcoin for years. And then Ethereum came out, and, and that's all we had, right? And so that we have this framework where, okay, there's only one really viable chain that everybody migrates to, which one's going to be, and which one's going to overtake Ethereum. I think when these bridges come out, it's a game changer because it's not going to just be one chain anymore. Um, when you don't have to worry about consensus um, in your network um, because Polkadot's offloaded it for you, and you can build vertical-specific um, chains. Um, then, then it's just a matter of choice. Like, do you want it to be run by the Ethereum engine? Do you want it to be run by, you know, whatever else comes out? Right. I 100% I, I agree with that, that we have to move away from this, like, kind of tribalism that's like, okay, this is the, the chain that is the correct one that has, that solves all the issues. And, like, that's, that's, that's not true at all. Like, if you, if you, if you hear someone talking, uh, and this way, it's probably someone that has invested in it, and it's not really uh, talking about the technology itself. It's not, like it doesn't care about it, right? What people oh, shill in this space? See, no way! <laughs> yeah, I don't go. I don't actually adhere to that ideology. <laughs> really? I actually believe that there will will be one world blockchain um, that will operate as a central source of truth for yeah. literally everything. Even uh, when we're networking the chains? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing is, I'm not convinced that those are actually. Uh, going to be, I have not seen any evidence to show that that's actually going to operate the way that they think it is. That's um, 
you know, I'm still waiting for that. Now, if it does, well, I'll cross that bridge when I get there and I'm always open to changing my mind. But at the moment, I see things like plasma architecture as being way more compelling, meaning that you have this very thin layer protocol, which allows you to have one sort of centralized, unitized measure of value, kind of like the, the, the I know that in, um, I think it's in London or something, they have, they have a, a, kil, a, a bar that represents the measurement of what a kilogram is. Um, and I feel like having that one, you know, currency, which basically defines what the value is for all other things would be a much more stable environment for the world to live in. And then anything that, that wants to participate in a global economy would operate on uh, something like a plasma chain where it comes underneath this unitized measure of value. Um, and that would be the methodology for creating uh, additional chain networks. They would kind of link into this backbone. Um, and then the backbone would would maintain a central ledger of truth of value yep. for the, for everything else. And I get a little, I get a little, I get a little, um, queasy when I think of this mishmash hash, you know, this mishmash, you know, mesh network of, of chains of different types of, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, algorithms that have absolutely no centralized way of measuring value and you have absolutely no way of confirming that those chains are operating to some sort of unified truth of how value is created and measured and transferred. I, I just get, I yeah. just get a little, little, a little, uh, when I hear about polka dot and cosmos, I think, uh, you know, we talked to Zakamani in, um, episode five, and, uh, you know, the read I got from him is that he's kind of, he's kind of leaning a little in that wet direction now too. And that cosmos is actually trying to build a system similar to that, or at least something that will plug into system like that. Um, but when I hear something like polka dot, where it's literally just any chain can connect to anything, I, I'm like, okay, show me when it works and then we'll talk. Right now, um, I read, I read the white paper and I go, okay, I don't, I don't see how this quite works yet. Um, yeah, so, while plasma MVPs are already being produced. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with the idea that we that we get an anchor currency or an anchor, you know, uh, way to bring people to consensus. Um, but I think uh, our comments, or my my comment at least, is more on the side of of the state machines themselves, like what's running the bytecode, um, and. And you know whatever whatever token ends up paying for that um, at some point, I, I feel like that's very viable as far as having like a single, I guess, baseline currency or baseline consensus that would that would that would spread across and provide an anchor value to everything else. Um, but as far as like running code, as far as like running uh, the state machines, I feel like that's where you know as a as a developer, if I'm going to write in a specific language for a specific platform, um, I, you know, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of support for um, Ethereum. Um, it was early. It's got a, a very open community. Um, it's got the EIP process. There's a lot of things that um, other projects have to c catch up to if they want their development community to grow as large or bigger. Um, and I feel this is this is outside of the of the context of like ether itself like ether being viable and it being the only currency or 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 if something else overtakes as the currency or the way to handle consensus um but just as far as development itself the code i th i think there's just going to be a lot of different varieties that you can choose from and and they're all going to be viable to some extent yeah totally we had the group uh cadena who's got a very unique way of scaling proof of work um, on the show as well, and they have their own language. Oh, Pact. What's it called? Pact. Pact, and it's a, it's a, it's a. They're, they run their own basically interpreted language, uh, and when you want to publish your code, you gzip it up and put it on, on the chain, uh, and then anybody can kind of execute that interpreted language, which has no recursion, um, which basically allows you to do um, uh, what's it called. Um, Formal formal verification on their language is baked in, 
Um, and those kind of things are going to be awesome going forward. But right now, you're absolutely correct. We are we are limited to the EVM in the way that it works, and that is a very robust. You can do literally anything on it um, as long as it comes under gas cost. Um, yep. but, uh, at the same time, it's also extremely restrictive uh, in that things like you know you have an address space of 256 bits, and if you do things. If you try and make a uint of size eight, you totally can, but it actually winds up costing you more because it has to inject yep. a bunch of code to handle that. Um, right. I feel like having specialized chains with specialized purposes and specialized calculation is absolutely um, going to be essential. Um, but you need sort of this backbone so that you can do things like register your SQL database transaction log with a with with a chain and, and stake in that, or um, link Kafka streams to your your chain in some manner so that you can actually uh, have some formal verification or sorry, some uh, not formal verification, but um, you know, uh, truth consensus on your stream data as it goes in and out and keep the top layer state and things like Definity, which don't necessarily have their consensus protocol tied with their ledger. um, You can, you can decouple those things and actually run uh, a machine that only maintains top level state, but to, but to, provide value to the world on a global scale, I still feel like you need a central chain, which is just robust and does the bare minimum that you need and has an address space and can provide, uh, can transfer KYC and identity uh, across these various platforms. Um, I don't feel like you're going to get that if you're mishmashing a ton of consensus protocols in together and say they're all just as equal as each other. We can transfer value. I feel like you're going to have too much delay, latency, inability to run, uh, to um, to uh, um, to challenge uh, bad actors, inability to um, you know uh, just uh, transfer data at the speed that we you kind of want, and inability to verify that the individual chains are running in a uh, uniquely uh, uh, what's it called. Uh, uh, decentralized and trustless manner. Uh, so I don't know. I think these are all great. And I think uh, when you have projects like yours, which um, have these libraries that um, enable the very base protocol to sort of operate in a, um, a more reliable way, because you have these audited libraries, these audited smart contracts that can actually say, Hey, this is the bare minimum functionality that we know is correct. It's just going to be an essential um, these primitives are just going to be essential for building applications going forward, no matter whether or not it's Polkadot, whether or not it's Cosmos, or whether or not Plasma. And general state channels become the uh, methodology that people uh, link to that main chain. So I think this is a great project. Yep. I think we can all yeah, agree um, that regardless of what are, what, how we feel things will move forward, uh, to say you know what it, this space is going to look like in five years is, is overly arrogant. Uh, we have no idea. It's definitely difficult. Yeah, we have no idea what 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 route the the you know everyone is going to take and what's going to become popular slash only used slash the landscape of all of this stuff and within the next five years. And yeah. but y'all are doing the right thing in terms of uh, pushing it in the right direction or pushing or pushing it forward at all. And that's and that's building stuff and um, trying to educate others on how to do things properly within the space that's secure and um, efficient so uh, i appreciate that right yeah yeah yep. so how can people yeah. reach you um and learn more about your project so our, our website right now modulartech.io um is is where you can reach us uh we've got a couple contact links on there it's not very descriptive about what we're working on right now um just because it's it's better to put you know um you don't want to put inaccurate information and there's there's been a lot of pivoting internally as far as like what exactly the end looks like um and then um our github is is modular dash network um and that's where you'll find all of our smart contracts and now that we've gotten on this podcast and and we've talked about them i'm gonna put some priority on on cleaning those libraries back up and getting them up to date uh with the latest uh, solidity versions and finish uh, getting the uh, packages cleaned up the way I want it. So. Development yeah, through um, discussion. How can people find you, Chris and Will? 
right? I, th I so think this is the easiest way is on Discord. Yeah, on Modular's Discord. We, we yeah. are there almost 24-7, so you can reach us out there or or direct messages that are open, so can can message us directly or, or message on the Modular channel, and, and we will be glad to talk with you. It doesn't matter if you were already experienced in the area, if you were, if you were uh, uh, like just starting, that's that's something that I want to make clear here. Today, we, we, we listed some problems that we are still facing, some things that we have to fix and have decisions that we have to, that have to be made uh, at some point or the other. But uh, I don't want you that is listening to think that those are all barriers. Uh, think about it are more like opportunity of things that need to be solved and things that you can work on in the future and that you can join this space and make like huge impact like in any, any area that that's that is needed right now there's a lot of stuff to be done yep it's great great thanks guys for coming on the show as usual you can reach uh us uh me on twitter at uh corpetti um, nope that's me <laughs> you can reach you can reach cory at corpetti on twitter you can reach me at colin c-o-l-l-i-n-c-u-s-e-e colin couchet on twitter um you can see us uh also in our slack on uh, the uh, was it the, the BTC podcast Slack, or is it spelled out? Uh, the Slack is the Bitcoin podcast. Uh, yep, if you want to, if you want to join the Slack, go to the bitcoinpodcast.com and there's a Slack button in the nav bar, which will give you a sign up link. And then um, we are always there. Um, and if you need to reach out to us, that's probably the best way because I usually have a hard time with emails for some reason. Yep, um, we are always taking a. Uh, you know, um, good uh, good leads on guests to have on the program as well. So if you are interested, uh, please feel free to reach out to us there. Um, we'll chat with you and see if uh, see if there's a good show fit. Um, and we're also um, looking for sponsors. So if anybody wants to sponsor the program, you know, feel free to reach out, out to us there as well, um, and we'll talk about it. So thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it's a really great project. Thanks for having me. Great. Really Thank you very much, guys. See ya.